Welcome to the Lee Sloan Podcast. I believe that ideas and conversations have consequences, consequences that impact generations to come. Thanks for joining me today. Together, let's be brave enough to think, brave enough to feel, brave enough to change the world, one brave conversation at a time. Now, we all seem to want to be the popular kid, the one living the dream, the one who has it all, and the one everybody likes, right? But so often I've noticed that being on the top of the world doesn't always seem to be like it's cracked up to be. And anybody who's had any measure of success will tell you that. But still, we go back to it, we envy, we strive, and we seek, and we want to know what it's like. What does the world look like from up there, right? We just have to know. But in today's episode, I want to explore why we're so enthralled with this sort of pecking order. We're thrilled with stories and movies about people who rise from the ashes, like Cinderella, right? And also when we are so thrilled with when people are successful and we place them on a pedestal, we, we almost worship them, right? But when they fail, we come down hard on these people. And so I just really want to explore this concept. And I think it has huge implications for our culture, what we think about this sort of underdog, top dog phenomenon. Now, you know, people who are wise communicators usually are very careful to hide or underplay their top dog moments. After all, no matter how privileged you've lived, you want the hearer to understand that they're just like you, that they identify with the struggles of the common man, right? So even if they've lived with very much privilege in their life, they want you to know that you're just like them. But have you ever had this time in your life where you actually had the upper hand, where you had privilege, you had, maybe you were smarter than everyone else, maybe you were more gifted or more beautiful or whatever it may be, but that thing actually put you at a disadvantage. Now, like I said before, I have had these moments and I hesitate to share with you a story that I have to share with you, but this show's about being brave, so here goes. All right, so I'm in junior high and at that time in my life, not like every time in my life, but at that particular time in my life, I was pretty well liked and I, you know, could pretty much be friends with anyone, do anything I wanted to. I had a lot of privilege in that school that I was in, that small school. And, um, and you know, as young kids do, they have what they would call boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, I ended up having a boyfriend and I barely knew the guy, but you know, that's the way it goes. And we were on a school trip and we were in the bus and, um, my, I guess my boyfriend had invited me to go sit next to him. And so I was going to trade places with someone and go sit next to my boyfriend. This huge big deal in junior high, right? So I went over and sat down. No big deal, right? Well, this kid from the front, uh, uh, the, the, right, the seat right in front of me, comes over 
and grabs me by the bangs. Okay, now everybody had bangs back then. I'm not proud of it, but I remember him just holding me. They weren't good bangs, by the way. He held my bangs so hard and he wouldn't let go and he was very, very upset. And I remember when he opened his hands, I mean, I think a few different kids pulled him off of me. When he let go of my hair, there was hair in his hand. Like that's how hard he had me by the hair. And I remember thinking, what in the world has gotten into this kid? And I knew him. I knew that, um, you know, he wasn't one of the more suave, popular kids. (laughs) Naturally, I thought that all of my friends would be like, what is up with this guy? Um, You know, maybe he needs to apologize for what he just did, right? Well, I was shocked by the response of some of my friends, a lot of my guy friends. They turned around and started blaming me for the entire situation. And it really astounded me. They were like, you knew that he liked you and you sat right there, right behind him with your boyfriend. It made it obviously made him upset. Why could how dare you do that such a thing? to this kid. Okay. And it was then and there that I realized this dynamic that when you are top dog, there's really nothing you can say when you're at the upper end of the societal pool. You can't really say anything when an underdog comes after you. There's really no defense for that. And I realized that anything, any jealousies that ever had occurred toward me or anything came out when these kids were um, blaming me for someone else pulling out my hair. <laughs> okay. Now I know you guys weren't there and I, I'm sure this kid, you know, I'm sure he grew up to be a great individual. In fact, I'm, I'm fairly sure he did. And if he's listening, um, you know, no hard feelings, <laughs> but it was a very, very awkward situation um, where I felt powerless and there were only a few people who really saw what, from what my perspective, the injustice of the situation, but you know, there's something really powerful about this whole pecking order. And when we look at it, we realize that the top dog doesn't always have it that great. Now, years ago, I used to teach what's known as gifted education, um, education for the gifted and talented, the children with higher IQs or creative abilities. And so when I was taking my gifted courses, I had a professor who was also a politician. And it was a really good thing that she was a politician because come to find out when you start a gifted program in a school, a lot of times it's somewhat of a political endeavor because the ideas we have around gifted kids is that giftedness is somewhat of a privilege, right? That if you have extra abilities, intellectual abilities, that life is probably going to be easier for you. Or that um, you're probably going to be the straight-A student. That's a, that's a stereotypical way of looking at a gifted student. Or um, that if you, know, if you were going to go to a gifted program, that that was going to be a reward for doing so well in school. Um, and so it was this top dog mindset around gifted education. And so what our professor tried to drill into us was that giftedness wasn't actually a privilege giftedness in its essence was a special need 
Because if you look at a bell curve, you have people on um, who who have you know maybe learning disabilities. They're on one end of the spectrum of the bell curve, and then you have people with exceptional abilities on the other end of the spectrum of, of the bell curve. And the the idea is that anyone who doesn't fall in the middle actually has a special need. So giftedness and exceptional abilities are just as much of a special need and a special challenge as the end, other end of the spectrum. And so when I was talking to the gifted students about this, I would inform them that they were too were special needs students. And, you know, of course, images popped up in their head of, you know, a short bus kind of situation. And so they didn't really want to be thought of as a special need. But they, you know, if, if you think about it this way, it makes a lot of sense because let's say you're in a classroom and you already know all the material that's being presented. Well, if you know it all, that means you're no longer learning. And every student should have the right to learn in a classroom, correct? And so if they're not learning, they're not getting their needs met. And if they're not getting their needs met, then they need special accommodations just for them. And in some cases, a lot of these gifted students will have social-emotional needs that are different and maybe sometimes more intense of those with the average children in the average range of ability. But it took quite a bit of work for us to get adults to start to flip the script and consider that gifted students had a right to gifted services and accommodations in the classroom. And so we, we started to reframe this argument around calling it a special need. And it's amazing what that would do to the teachers when you start speaking of gifted ki- kids in terms of special needs students then all of a sudden, everything changes. The conversation around it changes, and the funding even changes, and the priority of serving our gifted population even changes because most people are more willing to put into people with special needs. But we all but ignored our young citizens with the highest potential. We assumed that they'd be okay, that they'd somehow survive in spite of us, Many of them struggle and many of them don't get what they need and don't reach their true potential. This really gets me on a personal level. Think about the kid who never causes a fuss, who always does the right thing. The adult who pays her taxes, who shows concern for his fellow human. Where is the compassion for the person who seems to have it all? Where's the empathy for someone who falls on the upper end of the bell curve? Very few of us really feel like we identify with the top dog. Some of the richest people in the world will not actually describe themselves as very wealthy. Most people, studies show, is that they'll refer to others who have more, and then they'll say, well, those people are wealthy, not me. And some wealthy people even go to great lengths, like they hide tags and receipts and things because they know all too well the social price tag of standing out as being seen as wealthy. And by the way, did you know that odds are, if you're listening to me today, you're probably richer than 95% of the people in the entire world. If you have time, go to this website. I'm going to put it on the show notes and it shows you how most of the world lives 
on the poorer end of the spectrum. And if you compare your lifestyle to that, I think you're going to be surprised. So the next time that you place judgment on someone who is rich by your definition of the word, just remember that you're someone else's richy rich. And like many people, they would envy you if they saw how you lived. Many people might even think that they do a much better job of it. We have all kinds of ways that we do this to each other. Um, We show ourselves to be the underdogs and other people to be those evil top dogs. You know, Republicans might call it draining the establishment swamp, right? Democrats want to take down those wealthy capitalists. And it's as if privilege and wealth were vices in and of themselves. We're so sensitized to our own weaknesses and our own disadvantages and the way life is unfair to us that we see ourselves as the underdog just trying to make it in this unfair world. I always find it baffling when people judge other people by the amount of money that they make or spend. But we don't even judge people equitably in this regard. Think about this. In most people's minds, it's fine if you're an entertainer and you make people laugh for a living, then okay, maybe you can be wealthy. We kind of expect that, right? It might even be okay if you're a wealthy business person, depending on maybe your political persuasion and how you feel about business. But what if you happen to be a politician and you're wealthy? Well, then you're probably corrupt. And what if you're a, gasp, wealthy minister of God? Well, you better not drive too nice a car, have too much in your savings account. Even though nobody checks how you got the money or what you do with your money, you just probably shouldn't have it because, you know, people of God shouldn't really go flaunting that kind of stuff. Comedians, well, you know, they make us laugh. That's different. But not those who give their lives to make other people's lives better. That That's unheard of, right? We think ministers couldn't possibly be making people's lives better if they have it so good themselves. We just can't comprehend it. It's hard for us to imagine that wealthy individuals like this could be good and decent human beings. Now, I'm sure there's corruption among comedians and preachers alike. But it's just strange to me how different people are judged according to different measurements. Some people, we just really want to stay the underdog. We're suspicious of their success. And I think that this has something to do with sort of like a Robin Hood complex. We identify with the lowly in an effort to bring some sort of equality and justice for all. That's what we feel that we're doing. Now, I'm going to end this a little short today, but next time I want to talk a little further about the larger implications for this Robin Hood complex on our society. I want to explore the topic of what some are now naming the Oppression Olympics. Yeah, the Oppression Olympics is essentially a race to the bottom to see how much any person can identify with oppression and injustice. It's almost become sort of like this game that we play with one another, especially in politics. So what are the consequences of comparing how bad we have it with how bad someone else has had it? Where is this leading us as a society? It's something for you to think about, and I would love it if you could join me on our next conversation. You're going to have time to send me some ideas. I want to know about a time in your life where having the advantage actually puts you at a disadvantage. 
if you could go ahead and go on to leaseloan.com, email me that information, or find me on Facebook, find my lease loan page, and just send me a quick um, audio clip of your experience. I would love to put you on the podcast for next week. If we have time, we can fit you in. That would be wonderful. Um, other than that, thank you for being here. Thank you for subscribing, for being a supporter of the show. Um, just keep sending us ideas. We'd love to, to get your feedback. And I hope you remember that we all have struggles. So be sure and judge with care. We'll see you next time.